Hello and welcome to the Cove City Church Podcast. I hope you're encouraged, inspired, and more aware of God's immense love for you. Enjoy the message. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, this is weird. Hi, I'm Zach. Hi, everybody. Wow, that was nice. Um, so this is my first time preaching, which, uh, whew. man, I ain't done this before, so if I get a little stuttery or I'm a little slow to speak, just have some patience with me, because, uh, I'm used to it, but we'll do our best. Um, since it's my first time preaching, I just wanted to share a little bit about um, what to expect because uh, the cool thing, like Josh was saying, is that we've got a rotating cast of people up here now because we have different voices and we all believe the same thing and we're all going to preach the gospel, but uh, we might go about it in slightly different ways or uh, manners or whatever. So. Uh, one thing about me is I really like to talk to people in the crowd because uh, it makes me comfortable and it makes them uncomfortable probably. Uh, usually I pick on people I know, so today it'll probably be Landon. Like I'll just be calling on Landon the whole time. Um, and I might ask for someone to read scripture at some point. I don't know. I just like, like he was saying, this is for all of us. This is for the body and uh, I'd love for everybody to be involved. So. If you want to say something during the service, say it, man. I, I won't be mad. Um, another thing is, uh, I guess, my priorities when I preach or when I read the Word or kind of the stuff that sticks with me the most, I have two main things. And that's, um, number one, uh, if you go to the Bible study with me, you know this one. It's uh, humans and God. And that's kind of just discovering through the Bible, who is the identity of man, what's their identity, and what's the identity of God, and how do they relate, what does that relationship look like. Uh, so if you think about that theme while I'm preaching, you might hear some of it. Uh, there might be good points to take away from that. And then the other thing is that this entire book is about Jesus. It's a singular story. Uh, personally, I... I'm an anime fan. I'm a weeb, bro. And uh, I feel like the best illustration I could come up with was Naruto uh, for explaining how the Bible <laughs> is one unified story. I mean, it's a simple statement in itself, so I probably didn't need an illustration. But uh, so like Naruto, right? If you're not familiar, it's like 900 episodes. We're talking the long game, dude. If you're, if you're in, you're in. And from the first episode of Naruto all the way to the last, the same story is being told. There might be some different characters at certain points. There might be a little bit of a change of scenery. But the core themes and the core values and everything is building on itself to get to a point. And uh, the same is true of the Bible. And the cool part about what we're talking about today um, is we're in Matthew. And this was supposed to be a Christmas service, but as you know, we got a little bit delayed. Um, so now we're doing Christmas on January, today the 9th, today's the 9th. So uh, the cool thing about this part of the story is we're actually almost at the climax here. Um, 
this is like this chart was huge in my middle school. I don't know if y'all got to see it in class, but uh, yeah. So like we're at man, we are like right at the tippy top, but not like all the way at the tippy top. We're just like almost there, um, because this whole book being about Jesus is really about the death and resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us. Um, but we're talking about the birth today. And so we're not quite at the climax, but you can't really have a death or a resurrection without a birth first. So this is equally as important. Um, yeah, so that, that kind of sets the stage for what we got. I'm going to pray uh, before I get rolling too much further into this. And then we'll read the word and uh, we'll get after it. Uh, dear Lord, I just pray that as uh, I speak up here today, that you would be magnified, that uh, the message you have for our community, uh, for the body, uh, would be clear, that I would not be heard, but you would be heard. I pray that uh, you would speak through me and that my own biases, my own opinions wouldn't bleed through, but uh, your truth would. Lord, I pray that uh, you would be glorified above all else by the end of this message, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're going to read the scripture. I don't know whose mic this is. You guys know? Hopes? All right. I got Hopes mic. Would anyone be willing to read Matthew 2, 1 through 12 for me? Oh, you got the mic? Cool. Oh, we got Lent. <laughs> My boy. <laughs> Matthew 2, 1 through 12. And also, if you're able to, could we stand for the reading of the word? Y'all can uh, sit. So, I said I was going to preach on Matthew 2, 1 through 12 but not really, because to understand this, we kind of have to go back several hundred years. Uh, yeah, because who the guys in this are, the guys, you know, the wise guys, uh, to understand who they are, we have to go back to Babylon, which is several hundred years, bare minimum 400. Uh, it's, def it's more than that, but like at the absolute least, it would have been 400 years uh, prior to Jesus' birth. Uh, because this is the only, Aaron, correct me if I'm wrong, is this the only other place in Scripture that the wise men are mentioned? It's the only other place in Scripture that we hear about the wise men. So we have to go back to hear about Daniel and Babylon to understand why these guys are showing up to see a baby boy in Jerusalem. So to go over the story of Daniel, um, I'll just give you a synopsis the best I can. Uh, Back in this time, uh, Israel was going through this crazy process of uh, rebelling against God and being taken captive by these rival kingdoms and being enslaved. And then God would deliver them out of this place to uh, be their own kingdom again under a king that God appointed. And then they would rebel again. Back, it's this whole maddening cycle over and over again of rebellion and redemption and rebellion and redemption. And right now we're in the uh, post-rebellion phase where they've been captured. 
uh, and they are subjects to the kingdom of Babylon at this point. And the king of Babylon at this time is a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, which is a fun one to say. Uh, and so Nebuchadnezzar was a very strong king uh, in that section of the world and was revered amongst most of the kingdoms. And he wasn't like a super nice guy. Uh, wasn't a great guy. So the story of Daniel, there's parts before the dreams with Daniel, uh, but we're going to focus on the dreams and kind of what that means. Uh, Daniel was favored in King Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. Uh, you know, when he took over Israel, there were some Israelites that were, whether it was young and fit, smarter, more capable, they got to be slaves to the king in a more gracious way. Uh, and for Daniel, that meant he was a part of a group called uh, the Magi. And what ends up happening with King Nebuchadnezzar is he starts having these crazy dreams and he can't make any sense of them. So he turns to the head of the Magi, which would have been a group of men, um, probably not a large group, but uh, he turns to the head of the Magi and he says, guys, I'm having these dreams. I need someone to interpret them. And they're like, yeah, king, we can do that. Uh, he's like, I don't, I don't think you get it. I'm not playing around. I need you to be able to interpret these dreams. Or else I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill your family, and I'm going to burn your house to the ground because don't tell me you can do this if you can't do this. It's like, we can do it. So the king, he gets smart, man, and he goes, all right, if you can do it, tell me what my dream was. And I don't know if anyone has ever issued you that challenge. Um, that's impossible, unless you're a mind reader. I am not, so I could not do that. And the Magi felt very similarly. They looked at the king and they said, dude, ain't nobody doing that. There is not a person on this planet who can tell you your dream without you telling them first. It's not happening. And the king feels disrespected by this, and he's pissed off, and he goes, you know what? You're all dead. He issues a decree to kill every single magi in the kingdom. Now, Daniel wasn't in this meeting, but he was within the group of the magi in Babylon. And so we have a character, uh, a guard of some sort, gets sent to Daniel, and he tells him, hey, man, uh, you guys, you and your friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you guys are all dead because they were also in the Magi. And the king, he's having these dreams, and the head guys really, they pissed him off, and you're all dead. So Daniel panics, and he runs to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, guys, what are, what are we going to do? And before, actually, I, I skipped a little portion here. Before he even runs to his friends, he asks the guard, tell the king I want an audience with him. Daniel's just buying time at this point. He doesn't have a plan. He's just like, oh my gosh, we're going to die, and i got to do something about it. So he asks for an audience with the king. 
And then he runs to his friends. He's like, guys, here's the news I just got. What are we going to do? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tell him, let's pray to God for him to reveal the dream to you. And so uh, the, th- the four of them uh, end up praying together uh, for God to reveal the dream to Daniel. And sure enough, God does reveal the dream. And Daniel stays up all night praising uh, the Lord, uh, knowing that he can tell the king his dream. So following day, or following days, somewhere in that time frame, Daniel gets his audience with the king and approaches the king and tells him his dream. And in doing this, all the lives of the Magi are spared, and Daniel is made head of all the Magi in Babylon. And the Magi are also referred to as the wise men, which is where we find the wise men in the New Testament when they come and show up at Jesus' house. So flash forward back to Matthew. Notice I said uh, the wise men show up at Jesus' house and not the manger. Our nativities kind of got it a little skewed. Um, These guys show up probably like when Jesus is two years old. It's not uh, the night of. Um, That's just a fun fact, not really important to the story, I guess. But yeah, so to paint the scene, it's not crying baby Jesus wrapped in cloths and uh, Mary holding him in a manger. They're showing up to Joseph and Mary's house to see a two-year-old kid. And another thing about these magi, uh, I guess we don't know this for certain, how many people traveled with them, but traditionally it's three uh, is what the nativities show. There's three gifts. that We, we aren't guaranteed that there were three magi. Uh, back then it would have been very dangerous to travel with three people. Uh, It's kind of asking to get mugged and killed and all your stuff stolen. So, and the other reason why it probably wasn't three is because it says they traveled from the east. And uh, where Jesus was born, in relation to Babylon, who we just read about, Babylon was to the east of Jerusalem. And uh, we can kind of infer, you know, draw some conclusions that all right, this is the only other mention of wise men in the Bible. It's to the east of where Jesus is living. Probably came from the same spot. Now, again, we don't know that 100%. Uh, we we got to be honest there about that. But if we're making the inference, it seems to make sense that that's where they came from, Babylon. So... The other inference we can make, and again, it is an inference, we don't know it 100%, um, is that because Daniel was placed into a position over the Magi, who the Magi, by the way, uh, in Babylon, Magi is a shortened form of the word magician, so we're not talking about like just smart dudes in a room. Odds are these guys were astrologers, potentially practicing the occult, like I'm not a magician. I don't know what magicians do, if I'm being honest. Uh, but, you know, magic-y stuff. That's, that's what they're doing. And now Daniel's in charge of them. Um, Daniel, as a servant of God, uh, we can infer that it's possible in his position as leader of the Magi, he would have instilled some prophecies, instilled some knowledge 
of the coming Messiah, and that's how they know about this king of the Jews. That's how they were able to follow this star to the king of the Jews. Now there's some debate uh, about the Magi. I'll just throw that out there too. Uh, some people think uh, they were God-following uh, men, Jewish. I personally, I don't lean that way, but there is some debate about uh, the nature of who they were. But the question of who they were uh, is an interesting one because when I was planning this sermon, I'll be honest, I started, I was looking for, I wanted to learn from the wise men. I was looking at the passage, Matthew 2, 1 through 12, where they go to Herod and then they go to Jesus and they bring the gifts. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to learn from these guys? And it was from this behavioral context of, well, maybe these guys were well-studied, and that's how they knew the king was coming. And they were in the word. They understood it. They were waiting. They were patient. I'm doing all this stuff, but admittedly, in all that, like I just laid the context for, we don't really know that these guys were like Jewish people reading the scriptures, looking for Jesus, waiting for him. We don't know that. Maybe. There's debate, but in looking at the wise men's actions and what they did and assuming that they were these God-following men doing all the right things, we're, we're looking at the wrong thing. It's a little misguided. And so that's where I was at when I was first playing this sermon. I was like, all right, my first point's going to be, hey, study the word and, and know what's to come. And that's a good thing. I, I still think you should do that, but I don't think that's what this passage is about. Second point was going to be like uh, about the gifts and giving our best to the Lord. And I, there probably is something to say about that. Uh, but again, I don't think that's the overarching theme of what this passage is about. I was so fixated on who the wise men were that I was missing the main character of the story. This story is not about the wise men and what they did. It's about what the wise men are telling us through, about who Jesus is through their actions. The question <laughs> that this story answers is, who is Jesus? Because at the end of the day, the wise men are just people like us. Whether they were God-following people or not, whether they were magicians practicing the occult, they are flawed, sinful people like the rest of us. There's not a ton to learn from them. On the other hand, and learning who Jesus is, there's a lot to learn. So the reason the wise men exist is because we're talking about two-year-old Jesus, all right? We talk a lot about the divinity of Jesus and what that means and how he is God in the flesh. He was, we forget to talk about the flesh sometimes. He's in the flesh, too. He's a two-year-old kid. He can't walk around and tell everybody, I'm God. I'm here. I'm, <laughs> I'm God in the flesh at two years old. So these guys, symbolically, it really happened, but the symbols that they bring communicate to us who Jesus is. Now the first way they communicate to us who Jesus is is actually within the story of when they visit Herod. Uh, they say, we're here to see the king of the Jews. Uh, so that's, that's the first one. They're here to see the king. Um, 
So they just kind of they spoiled it a little bit because uh, that that's where we're going to land at, at, on at the end. Um, but yeah, they tell you outright, we're here to see the king of the Jews. And then uh, they brought three gifts for him, and we can go deep into uh, these gifts. There's a lot to unpack here, and I will hit on it very briefly. There's more than what I will hit on if you want to do some independent study and research. Uh, it's very cool. But um, the main thing to note is that every single one of these gifts was incredibly expensive. Now, uh, kings in this day, expensive things were reserved for kings. These were not items that were going to the common guy uh, on the street, selling it in a booth. That's not where this is being found. Like, this is some special stuff. So first is gold. Nobody had gold beside kings. Nobody had gold. It was not a common thing. You weren't seeing it anywhere else. Frankincense. So frankincense um, was an incense that was used within the temples uh, for the worship of gods. And interestingly enough, a lot of kings back then viewed themselves as gods, deities in the flesh. And so frankincense, you know, it was used in uh, Jewish religion, but also in other pantheons as well, where they were worshiping gods, burning this incense, and oftentimes the gods they were worshiping were the kings themselves, who viewed themselves as a deity. And then myrrh um, is the most expensive of the three, and this was kind of an embalming agent. <laughs> I'm not that scientific. I can't tell you how it worked. But uh, it would be used in the embalming process. And even more interestingly to me, and like I said, this is all stuff we're just going to kind of hit on, um, is that it was used as an oil to anoint priests in the temple. So, again, if we want to read into the symbols here, number one, very, what is very, very plainly being stated is that Jesus is king. That is being stated plainly above all else there. Um, and this is the more, do some independent research part. We're also seeing an allusion to his death in the embalming fluid. We're also seeing an allusion to his godship in the frankincense. And my personal favorite part is also with the myrrh, uh, we're seeing an allusion to him as high priest, um, which if you want to read more about that, Hebrews uh, goes through that really well and I think Hebrews sermon series at some point uh, but to go back to the wise men uh, and to just really drive this home to focus on who they were is to miss the good news here because a lot of times when we read the Bible we have this tendency to look for what are, my, all right, what are my three steps? What are the three things I need to do? What, what's the practical life application here for me? Okay, stop lying. Okay, I could, that's cut and clear and I can do that. And sometimes because we have such cut and clear portions of the Bible, we'll take things like men delivering gifts that tell us who someone is and say, all right, okay, well, they were well studied. That's not the case. The greatest thing that we can learn here is about Jesus' kingship. And like I said, this whole book is about him. And I think the best thing we can do to talk
talk about Jesus' kingship is actually go back to Daniel. And uh, I think I got a slide in here where uh, Daniel tells the king his dream. And this is what Daniel says to the king. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chests and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. And its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. The rock struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. And the whole statue was crushed in the pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. So that's the dream. And the king, as you'll remember, he wanted the dream interpreted. He didn't just want to know the dream. That was his challenge for the magi. But once he had the dream, he's like, okay, you know it. Now tell me what it means. And this is what Jesus's uh, kingship means for us. Uh, Daniel 2, 36 through 44. That was the dream. Now I will tell you, king, what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you ruler over all the inhabited world and has, even, has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom, represented by bronze, will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one, as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that his kingdom will be divided. Like iron and mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron, but while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. If I cry, man, just uh, we'll let it be awkward together. Um, The rock showed up in a manger, and it came to crush all the kingdoms of this world. And that's what the wise men are letting us know, that the king of this upside-down kingdom that's going to crush everything else is here. And the significance that holds for us is that when we were created, we, in our arrogance, already had a king. Jesus was always king. We had our king, and we rebelled. And in our arrogance, we thought that we could be kings. But the reality is, we're horrible kings. We steal, we lie, we rape, we murder. We are horrendous kings. And there's 
Now, we, we didn't see a good king because we had God in the garden and we turned from him and we rebelled. And for all those years, we didn't see a good king, not a truly good king. We saw kings like us that were flawed. Even the good ones had their issues. But now in Jesus, the king has showed up who is perfect, who is instilling a kingdom where we don't lie, we don't steal, we don't murder, we don't rape, we treat each other with respect, there is not oppression, we love one another as it was intended in the garden. We are going back to the garden where we were supposed to be in perfect submission to our God who is not an oppressor, who is here to give us his goodness and to love us and to instill a kingdom where we can love one another and live in harmony. So that rock that's coming to crush all the kingdoms, it came. And Jesus is the perfect king that is being represented. And his kingdom is going to grow and cover the whole earth. For now, the rock has arrived, but the mountain is growing. Which means... We are not in the perfect kingdom yet. We still lie, rape, murder, steal, belittle, oppress. Those are the sad realities of our world. But we know the mountain's growing, and we get the chance to be a part as it grows, to get a taste of what it'll look like when the whole earth is covered when we choose to submit to the king, who again is a good king, he's not here to hurt us, he is not here to oppress, when we submit to him, we get to see a piece of heaven and a piece of this new kingdom when we are not lying to each other but being truthful, when we're being patient with each other, when in our anger we don't murder somebody or even another whole step, which we'll talk about when we get into the Sermon on the Mount, we don't even get angry, not in the way that we used to. So what does that mean for us? Like I said, there's not always a nice, neat application. So I think you might have to determine a little bit what it means for you. Um, maybe you've not been in submission to the king. We, we all haven't. We're all going to do that. But maybe we need to look at our king and his laws and his decrees that he's put out before us, which are good, and say, oh man, I've I've not been living as part of the kingdom. I've been rebelling. Maybe it's we need to worship him. Maybe this next song, uh, whatever it is, we just got to sit and worship and be grateful for this king. I can't tell you exactly what it looks like for you, but I just hope you walk away uh, today knowing that we have a good king who desperately wants the best for us. So I will pray and... Uh, We'll let the worship team come up. Dear Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your kingship and your kingdom. We thank you that in our brokenness, instead of abandoning us, instead of leaving us stranded, you gave us an option uh, to join your kingdom, to join a kingdom where we no longer have to hurt one another, where we can be free in the knowledge that we were bought with a price 
and rescued from our own sinful nature, Lord. Let's pray that uh, we would worship well with this next song, God, and that we would all, myself included, uh, we would all be grateful for what you've done for us, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We'd love it if you would join us in person next week at one of our two Sunday services. Visit CopeCityChurch.org for more information on service times, how to get plugged in, and how to give. We hope you have a blessed week.